0: Man in the Window contains depictions of sexual violence and is not suitable for
1: everyone. Please be advised. There's a good chance the man loitering by the fence in the nursery section is the kind of customer pay-and-save clerk Jeff Gardner detests most. A shoplifter.
2: Hey, don't come in my store and steal my stuff. You know, go find some other store.
1: His coworker, Ron Stilwell, is sure they've got a thief when he tails the man into automotive and sees a hammer disappear behind the car cushion he clutches to his midsection. Gardner and Stilwell are a crook's nightmare. These young clerks handle store thieves as if they were high plains hunters tracking game, tailing silently, using hand signals, positioning themselves as a team to spring.
2: We pretty much do the same thing every time, and you know this is Not our first shoplifting arrest.
1: And oh yeah, Gardner's a cop in training, waiting to enter the police academy.
2: To do what we did was not unusual, Um, but, um, and this one apparently was quite unusual because of the
1: circumstances. Stillwell makes the first move, following the man out to the nursery to ask, has he found what he's looking for? And the shoplifter, attempting distraction, says... Oh, yeah, I need that big planter pot way over there. But when Stillwell sends someone else to fetch the pot, the man says he's got to go find his wife. He goes back inside and then walks up and down the aisles, looking more and more upset. Gardner and Stillwell tail him, and in the paint department, the clerks see him slip a can out from under the back of his shirt and put it on a shelf. It's dog-repellent the smelly kind you sprinkle on your lawn. They move in before the man can ditch the rest of what he's stolen.
2: He had to know who we were, had to realize what the problem was, and now he he knew that, okay, it's up now, you know.
1: They lift the protesting man by the arms to steer him through the double doors of the back office. He screams, shouting that they're treating him like an animal, and then fakes a full-blown heart attack. The second the clerks loosen their grip, the man bolts.
2: It was a, a fight, a struggle for many minutes. He's fighting with me on the floor, and Ron's there with me, so the three of us are grappling on the floor, trying to trying to control him, trying to take something out of us. You know, we don't know what he's got in there.
1: Gardner reaches into the man's pants and pulls out a hammer.
2: Then we're going to pick him up and put him on the, the rolling chair, and he's still moving around a little bit. Here we are trying to do whatever we can do, and also get somebody from the store to call the sheriffs, you know, get get him over here. We got this guy who's fighting with us.
1: So they grab rope. Two sheriff's deputies arrive to find this man tied up in a chair. He's carrying little money and no identification, but he is carrying a handcuff key. I used to be a cop, the man says. He continues yelling and talking in circles, rolling around in the chair. Says his head hurts and he's going to vomit. There's no sign of injury and his words don't make sense. The deputies decide that this guy is mentally imbalanced. It's when the shoplifter asks the deputies to clear the room that the Insanity Act stops instantly. Joseph D'Angelo identifies himself as an Auburn patrolman. He says he was, quote, just acting crazy because he was afraid we would call right up to Auburn and tell them what had happened, which is what Deputy Bill Schroeder does. Right after he writes D'Angelo up for petty theft and watches the busted officer leave, supposedly, to go on duty. Schroeder is now long retired. He says he doesn't remember the arrest, or, more precisely, because he's been talking to current investigators, he has no independent recollection of the event. Neither he nor Gardner can shed light on what crazy things Joseph D'Angelo was saying.
2: I don't want to use the term crazy, but it, it is crazy to to think of, um, here's a guy that we just assumed was somebody coming in and stealing something for just a personal gain to use at home for whatever reason.
1: It's the summer of 1979. By this point, D'Angelo has raped more than 40 women. He has killed three people. But he's starting to lose control of his victims.
2: It isn't until later that it really sinks in that, what the hammer was all about.
1: The narrow escape marks a shift in D'Angelo's crimes. From here forward, he'll seek to kill all of his victims. He'll move through the unsuspecting world as a human chameleon, a man who shifts from innocuous to frail, and then dangerously violent, slipping into lunacy and out, raising the question of which persona is in control.
2: The many faces of Joseph D'Angelo.
1: From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Paige St. John, and this is Man in the Window. This is Episode 9, The Chameleon. The spring day that Joseph D'Angelo was brought into custody, District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert makes a beeline for the Homicide Division's interrogation room.
3: Having had many years of involvement in this case, I wanted to see what would happen. I wanted to see if he would talk. I wanted to see what he would say.
1: This criminal has been a formative part of Schubert's life, both professional and personal. D.A. Schubert and her sisters grew up in the shadow of the East Area Rapist. She often relates the crimes to her own suburban East Sacramento childhood, here in 2016, in announcing a renewed manhunt with the FBI.
3: We didn't lock our doors at night. We rode our bikes around, and the only thing my parents would say at night was, just make sure you're home before dark. And that's what we did as kids. It was a time of innocence.
1: In June 1976 the East Area Rapists began to prowl those same suburbs, attacking women and couples in their bedrooms, raping more than 40 women and girls as young as 13. The attacks ringed the Schubert neighborhood. The family's nights were lit by spotlights of vigilantes and their sleep broken by the overhead thunder of a police helicopter.
3: It was a time when really, in essence, a community was taken hostage. Um, Everybody knew it.
1: Suburban life never felt quite safe after that. Schubert was a driving force behind rekindling a statewide manhunt for the rapist. By then, realized as not just a rapist in the North, but a serial killer in the South of California, a predator so elusive that after four decades, investigators had only a single substantive clue, his DNA. Tonight, The fugitive who has occupied so much space in Schubert's life is whisked into a Spartan interrogation room. There's only a table and three chairs. Officers yank out the string holding up D'Angelo's shorts and park the overweight man on a black plastic chair, cuffing one of his wrists to the metal table bolted to the floor. A video camera sends the feed to those gathered outside, a modern two-way mirror. I was in a room
3: watching it on a monitor, and I was feeling like I was watching, like I said, Hannibal Lecter. It was a trip, man. It was a bit, it was
1: a trip to watch something like that. Because the manhunt has ended so suddenly, because a police officer named Joseph D'Angelo was never on any suspect list, this is the day the modern investigation really starts. Homicide detectives from three counties take turns trying to question D'Angelo playing good cop and bad cop one sets a Dr. Pepper in front of the prisoner and when he doesn't touch that fetches him a bottle of diet another detective bullies and berates D'Angelo and tries to shock him with bloody crime scene photos D'Angelo just stares back occasionally asking why he's there he refuses the drinks the offers of food or the bathroom breaks He remains in the black plastic chair all night, a burly 72-year-old, overweight at 215 pounds, with a wisp of hair across the top of his large head. His calves bulge below his stained, charcoal gray Bermuda shorts, and his thick neck stretches the collar of his rumpled white undershirt. It seems Schubert's hopes for revelations will be disappointed. There
3: was a number of investigators that were there, he wasn't like saying things to the, really admitting things to the investigators, but once left alone,
1: those watching the video feed outside realized D'Angelo is talking.
3: It was somewhere around midnight or one o'clock in the morning, and I was just remembering that he just kept. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, a lot, but it was enough to understand that he was trying to set up what I believe to be his defense.
1: An insanity defense.
3: This person made me do it. I tried to push him out, those kinds of things. I mean, I've I've sat across tables from people that are ser- serial killers, but I've never seen that kind of, um, you know, individual who's muttering these things to himself, which now in hindsight, you know, I realized what he was trying to do.
1: After more than eight hours of fruitless questioning interspersed with increasingly longer passages when D'Angelo is left alone, in the hope investigators will catch something in his whispered muttering, D'Angelo is finally booked in the jail. It's now 2.29 a.m. In D'Angelo's booking photo, there's a pink stain of fresh blood on his white undershirt abrasions on his face and a large bandage on his head. Schubert's office won't say what happened. More than one confidential source tells me D'Angelo rammed his own head into the wall. There is no equality for victims of crime, no equal access or right to transparency. Joseph D'Angelo eluded discovery four decades ago by crossing county lines. From the moment of his arrest, his victims realize how fractured justice remains. The brother of one Southern California murder victim is invited to D'Angelo's arrest announcement as a speaker, and he uses his seven minutes to promote a ballot measure to expand DNA testing of criminals. At the other end of the spectrum are Gay and Bob Hardwick, victims of a 1978 blitz attack in their home in Stockton, an hour south of Sacramento. The Hardwicks learn of D'Angelo's arrest from their children, and they have to hunt for details on the Internet.
4: There was no no one who had the decency to knock on my door or get a hold of me and give me a heads up.
1: The statute of limitations on rape in the 1970s was just three years. So initially, D'Angelo is charged only with murder. But D'Angelo had a ruse of telling victims he was only there for their money and a practice of moving women out of their beds to the living room to rape them. So prosecutors add another charge, one that has no expiration and can merit a life sentence, kidnapping for robbery. As they decide which charges to file, prosecutors select only 13 of almost 50 rapes. Gay and Bob can't find a good reason why their case identical to so many of the other attacks, isn't among them. And Bob's a lawyer. It's so frustrating, isn't
4: it? That's just bullshit. Part of my life.
1: (laughs) The Hardwicks press San Joaquin County, and the district attorney staff refers them to the DA in Sacramento.
4: And Sacramento, when,
1: when asked, directs you right back to San Joaquin County. Ultimately, San Joaquin County prosecutors say they don't want to press charges because they can't tie the Hardwick attack to a murder or a case with DNA in their own county. What's more, DA Tori Verber Salazar says the other counties were doing a good job of putting D'Angelo away for good.
3: We're very focused A plus people. We're like, get the conviction, make sure this man can never do this harm again. Get him, you know, get him incarcerated.
1: But she confirms what Gay already feels, with no charge. There's no standing.
3: Technically, we don't have a seat at the table because we're an uncharged county.
1: Which leaves Gay feeling she and Bob are a little more than collateral on the road to the death penalty. It was an awful feeling, she says in a text to me, to keep knocking on the door of justice, just to be ignored like a buzzing mosquito. Then there's the toll of the true crime industry. There are always producers and film crews hovering, making at least four drama specials and sending bottles of champagne along with their cameras to both create and capture the celebration of D'Angelo's downfall. A few victims embrace this limelight and the fandom, appearing on talk shows and signing autographs at crime conventions. But aspects of this public fascination with horror disturb other victims. An advanced screening of one Golden State Killer docudrama horrifies and re-traumatizes Jen Carroll, whose father and stepmother were bludgeoned to death by D'Angelo in 1980.
0: I learned things that I didn't know, including that the files, the open case files, were stolen. That is my terminology, stolen from Orange County. And that then I saw a crime scene photos of my dad and Charlene in their bed, And that is absolutely horrendous for me to see.
1: Stolen may not be the right word. Crime writer Michelle McNamara characterized her acquisition of a room full of case files as a trade. In exchange, she ran the document trove through a scanner so law enforcement could work with digital files. But this unorthodox deal feeds the fear harbored by Jen and so many other D'Angelo victims that he'll walk out of jail on a technicality.
0: And so I realized, oh my God, this may put our case against D'Angelo in jeopardy. So I honestly, I was sick. I was terrified. I couldn't believe this kind of thing could happen.
1: To top it off, the docudrama suggests Jen's father was forced to watch his wife's rape before they both were bludgeoned. A salacious tidbit prosecutors say is unsupported by evidence, but one that fits neatly with the narrative of incomprehensible evil being built around the Golden State Killer.
0: So it's extremely, extremely rough when you talk about this intersection of entertainment and crime.
1: Jennifer Carroll's renewed trauma, the plight of Gay Hardwick and scores of other victims cast as outsiders, these and other unhappy victim struggles begin to solidify into a foundation. Not one that supports the prosecution's stated desire to see Joseph D'Angelo sentenced to death, but one that will spare his life. Victims are warned from the start that this case is big, potentially the largest criminal trial in California history. Court records expand the suspected attacks to 13 counties, though only 11 are known to the public. Six counties decide to press charges and consolidate their case in Sacramento. Four of those counties will seek the death penalty. The secret interrogation video plays a part in that decision. Anne-Marie Schubert holds a screening of selected clips for the other prosecutors. And among those watching is Santa Barbara County DA Joyce Dudley prosecuting the four Goleta murders. Dudley's an avowed Democrat who, until this moment, has only ever sought the death penalty once. And Dudley had planned to just sit and listen. But when another prosecutor says condemning D'Angelo to death is a no-brainer, she immediately shoots back.
5: It's never a no-brainer for me, never, never. Under,
1: what, under any circumstances, I have to sleep on my own pillow. But she once attended a performing arts school and says she knows an act when she sees one.
5: Whether it was the former actress in me or the now prosecutor in me, but that was the sense I got, that he was choosing his movements, he was choosing his words, and he was playing a part.
1: I immediately head to Santa Barbara. From her office overlooking the Santa Inez Mountains... D.A. Dudley describes what it was in that interrogation video that bothered her.
6: That
4: he did things in such a way to make sure that he was loud enough, clear enough, and he wasn't talking to himself. And when
3: you're watching him, you realize he's talking for a purpose.
1: Early guesses are that it will take five years and $20 million to get to trial the time frame soon begins to seem terribly optimistic. After two years, there hasn't even been a preliminary hearing, normally a brief statement of facts to convince a judge the evidence merits trial. But for D'Angelo's prelim, prosecutors want to call 100 witnesses over the course of four months. It's never explicit, but this elaborate hearing, which has every appearance of a mini-trial, is a hedge- against time. A key witness in Tulare County has died. Detectives are in poor health. D'Angelo has lost a dramatic amount of weight in jail and appears frail. And Phyllis Zitka-Henneman, the East Area Rapist victim number one, has been diagnosed with liver cancer. What victims don't know is that D'Angelo wants to plead guilty. He's been offering to plead guilty for months. In return, he wants the death penalty dropped. He'll accept a life sentence. Some of the prosecutors have appeared at fundraisers and press conferences promoting an execution for D'Angelo, and they won't answer the plea offer. The defense team finds itself in a tough spot, but not one public defender Joe Cress, didn't see coming.
5: I think in a case this political and this with these horrendous charges it's very difficult for the prosecution to um, consider offering us something other than the death penalty.
1: So Cress and co-counsel Alice Michael try something a little risky, but not uncommon in capital cases. They reach out to D'Angelo's victims. They ask for their input on what they call a resolution that avoids trial. In other words, a plea bargain. Most of the victims are outraged, but a few are happy to have someone who cares what they think. Among them, Victor Hayes.
2: This just blows my mind that I've had way more conversation with Mr. D'Angelo's defense than I've had with the prosecution. And as unethical as that seems, it's the fact.
1: Prosecutors are still not talking to the defense. So Cress and Michael try something even more unusual... They lay out D'Angelo's offer to plead guilty in the footnote of a mundane court filing for all the world to see. Most victims are caught by surprise and they react emotionally, but they also begin to see the tears in their patchwork of justice. Some of them receive a letter from prosecutors confirming the plea offer. A lot of victims do not.
0: Hey everybody, coming to you live from the Fairfield Inn in beautiful Santa Maria, California.
1: Jennifer Carroll hosts a homemade podcast that explores and dissects each twist and turn of her father's murder case, called The Lawyer's Daughter.
0: Tonight I want to start with and, and talk about a unique thing that's going on.
1: With the revelation D'Angelo was offered to plead guilty, Jen devotes an hour to the inequality among D'Angelo victims.
0: Until this week, and the news of the plea leaked out... I don't think I really grasped all of the ways that we are subsetted. Is that a word?
1: They're divided, not just by those with charges and those without, but by where they live and how attentive their prosecutors are. Jen reads to her listeners a statement by Chris McFarlane-Padretti, whose rape when she was 15 is not among the criminal charges.
0: I am only in favor of a plea bargain if it requires D'Angelo to one, fully provide all requested information on his
1: crimes. And and two, he pleads guilty to all of his heinous acts in court, whether he's being charged for them or not. It's important that he be asked in court, on December 18th, 1976, did you rape a 15-year-old girl three times? And that he answer out loud that indeed he committed
3: that crime.
1: And then Jen reads a similar statement from San Joaquin victim Gay Hardwick, also... An uncharged case.
0: I also wanted to express to you my ongoing frustration that some of us in the counties who have elected to do nothing Nothing to bring bring us us justice.
4: justice are experiencing. All I know is that I am out here advocating for myself, networking with other victims. It seems to me that justice is not going to be dispensed equitably in this
1: case. Victims from other counties will also step forward to complain about being left in the dark treated as outsiders and left to feel like surplus. One rape victim is never even informed about court hearings so she could attend them.
0: If they haven't figured out we all talk to one another by now, I don't know what they're doing because we absolutely do and we really have each other's backs, one for all and all for one here.
1: Joe Cress is listening and Jen has just given him the answer the defense team has been waiting for, a way to press the plea.
2: And I think that there
5: were a number of victims who believe kind of in an all-for-one, one-for-all.
1: At the next court hearing, victims force prosecutors into a large meeting. Some two dozen of them and their family members pack the district attorney's conference room. The DA from San Joaquin, Tori Verber Salazar, says it is an unusual development.
3: I truly believe that the uncharged victims in in their counties would not have had a place at the table if it hadn't been strong voices like gays saying, wait a minute, I might not be charged, but I am a victim. And my voice is as powerful and as important as anybody else's.
1: They extract a promise for better communication. And their demand that D'Angelo answer to all of the crimes, charged or not, becomes the basis for the plea. Prosecutors insist that what follows next was never a negotiation, that they never gave anything up. But it sounds a lot like negotiation. The talks take three months. Prosecutors abandon the death penalty. They still hold out for a prelim, saying they won't let D'Angelo plead guilty until after the mini-trial. Then... COVID-19 nixes the thought of any large extended courtroom proceedings. What's left are the scores of uncharged crimes. Chris Pedretti's rape, the attack on Gay and Bob Hardwick. Prosecutors draw up a list, and to each one, the defense says, yes, D'Angelo will admit to that. Defense lawyers Alice Michael and Joe Kress confirm the trade. They gave us the list of the the cases.
5: And it was pretty much what we would have expected from the discovery we had.
1: They dropped a few off. Here's my count of what's missing. The Goleta couple attacked and bound who narrowly escaped with their lives. Four rapes and sexual assaults in Sacramento, another in Contra Costa County. The Sacramento youth shot by the intruder he chased over backyard fences. The man clubbed over the head one morning in his own garage and two previously undisclosed rapes in Marin County that were part of the original sealed court filings. Still more rapes and murders, in which D'Angelo was at some point a suspect, will never be addressed. Dark shadows left to haunt the case on chat boards and in murder mysteries.
5: District Attorney Ms. Temple's
1: office. Cheryl Temple is Jennifer Carroll's deputy DA the woman prosecuting the Ventura County murders of Lyman and Charlene Smith. She's also one of the few willing to explain case strategy, including the attacks left out of the final plea.
4: There were some where we thought, you know,
5: he probably did it, but can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. We're not going to ask for that one.
1: Others have so much evidence that even the defense agrees. He will admit this one. There were some victims who did not want to be involved, and they decided for
5: whatever reason, um, I imagine, that he's had enough of their lives.
1: Even so, D'Angelo agrees to admit to an additional 188 uncharged crimes against 61 people, including a new rape, a woman too embarrassed as a 1970s teenager to tell officers what had happened that night when D'Angelo pulled her into the canal. Temple says prosecutors had always planned to take up the uncharged crimes, just not right away. Some were to be brought up in trial to show D'Angelo's operating pattern or his sexual violence. And then all of them were going to come in in one way or another in a penalty phase. To show why D'Angelo deserved to be put to death.
5: We had a very holistic view of the case from the
1: beginning. But that would have required the bulk of D'Angelo's victims to wait years to see their attacks heard in court. Would the man withering away in jail even live that long? The plea deal robs victims of the revelations and the exposition that would have come with a trial, including Sacramento victim Victor Hayes' hope of an investigation into D'Angelo's actions as a cop.
2: I mean, I already know he did it. So I really don't need him to admit it. I need him to be charged.
1: But at the same time, the plea offers validation. Gay Hardwick's rape and attack on her husband are included in the deal. In keeping with its track record, San Joaquin County is late in telling her. It's she who calls them. The meeting that afternoon at her husband's office is the very first time Gay sees her elected district attorney. And it's the first time she meets a case detective since her rape in 1978.
4: They said, well, we're meeting today because you're right. There's development in the case and there's a potential plea deal. And I said, yes, that's what I've heard. And I'd like to know where you have been for 42 years and why you're here now. And I was a little tense. I was feeling a little, I'm not sure if resentment is the right word, but maybe a little anger at the process.
1: Then, Gay learns D'Angelo will only admit to raping her if San Joaquin County agrees to not press charges.
4: I could just feel the steam pouring out of my ears at that moment, (laughs) because it was such a catch-22. I know logically the very best possible outcome, but at the same time, it just killed me how long and hard and difficult it was to get to this point where I'm sitting across from the elected DA who's finally listening and seeming to suddenly now take it
1: seriously. District Attorney Tori Verber Salazar confirms the substance of the meeting. And she credits Gay's outspokenness for a plea that includes uncharged crimes and their victims, something she says she's never before seen in her long career. Gay doesn't get answers to the things that haunt her, like whether D'Angelo targeted her because she worked for a wealthy developer who lived in the town where D'Angelo was a cop. But her attacker's admission will silence the maybes. Like maybe... She was mistaken. Maybe, you know...
4: The worst case scenario, maybe she just made it up. That's just the kind of thing that rape victims like me go through is feeling, wondering if if we're being believed.
1: The June 29th plea hearing finally arrives. To keep everyone, lawyers, victims, media, a healthy six feet apart, the case is moved out of Sacramento County Court and into a college ballroom. The same school where D'Angelo was awarded a criminal justice degree. The crowd assembling in many respects resembles a class reunion. It's just
5: been such a long journey. You know, we're approaching 40 years, and, and uh, I mean, there are victims here 45
1: years. Ron Harrington had hoped to see his brother's killer condemned to death, but even he sees the logic of a plea.
5: There are, you know, victims that have passed away. There are witnesses that have passed away.
1: D'Angelo, wearing a clear face shield, is wheeled onto the high stage at the front of the ballroom. Cameras project D'Angelo's face on two gigantic wall screens so all can see. The back of the wall is stacked with television crews, like at a political rally. But the hush that descends when the judge in robes steps up is pure decorum. All rise.
2: Department 24
1: of the Superior Court
4: of California in and for the County of Sacramento is in session. The Honorable Michael Bowman, judge presiding.
1: It's in opening remarks that for the very first time, a fraction of the still undisclosed interrogation surfaces. Read into the court record by a deputy DA as Schubert's office seeks to characterize D'Angelo as a manipulative liar, unchanged from the shoplifter in 1979 who faked a heart attack
6: and ranted senselessly. I did all that. I didn't have the strength to push him out. He made me. He went with me. It was like in my head. I mean, he's a part of me. I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out and had a happy life. I did all those things. I've destroyed all their lives. So now I got to pay the price.
1: The defense is asked and does not object to these remarks. And the reading of the crimes begins, both charged and uncharged.
5: The factual basis on count one. Bud Snelling was a journalism professor at the College of Sequoias in 1975, and the father of 16-year-old Beth Snelling, who had become a target of the Visalia Randall.
1: The six-hour plea hearing is tightly scripted, but there are departures. For instance, prosecutors allow victims to confront D'Angelo, It starts with Chris Pedretti's request to stand as D'Angelo admits to her attack. And other women follow. Almost every victim in the ballroom rises for Phyllis, who's watching from her hospital bed. One victim pushes these boundaries further. As a prosecutor begins to read the details of D'Angelo's attack on her and her son, she leaves her seat and approaches the stage.
0: After the sexual assault, she could hear D'Angelo walking around the house. When asked to describe her assailant to law, assailant to law enforcement, Jane Doe, number 20, reported that he had a small penis.
1: On cue, Jane Carson Sandler raises her arms and gives a double thumbs up to the audience behind her. The reaction takes a second.
4: Thank you. Counselor, you wish you'd be heard as the factual
1: basis. <laughs> D'Angelo never raises his gaze from the microphone before him.
4: Thank you. Regarding the uncharged offense of rape, Jane Doe 20, having occurred on October 5th, 1976, in the County of Sacramento, violation of Penal Code Section 261, do you admit or deny?
1: I admit. His voice is the same as it has been all day, thin and reedy, sometimes faltering.
4: Regarding the uncharged offense of imprisonment of Jane Doe, 20, and John Doe, 13, age 3.
1: I admit. The day-long plea hearing is extraordinary, filled with so many dark and disturbing details that many victims afterwards say they feel shell-shocked.
0: She could hear someone running down the hallway towards the bedroom. The door opened, and a masked male with no pants grabbed the phone from her, jumped on the
6: bed and put a knife to her throat. D'Angelo stacked a cup and a saucer on each of their backs. He threatened the male, if you move or make a sound with that dish, I'm going to blow your brains out. I'll kill her and let you hear it.
3: I admit.
0: He turned on the television with no sound, removed the blanket and straddled her back and forced her to masturbate him. D'Angelo removed the bindings from her feet, rolled her over and raped her vaginally several times.
4: Uh, I admire. After raping her, the defendant fired his handgun into the back of Deborah's head.
1: Guilty. There were no witnesses to give details from the murders, just the half eaten turkey carcass in the yard, the alarm clock blaring for what must have been days, the fireplace log left on the bed, and the brain matter on the walls. Schubert's office salts the plea hearing with hints of what she might have put on display at trial.
6: She heard D'Angelo repeatedly walking around the backyard. The neighbor owned a large German shepherd that stayed in their backyard. After D'Angelo's arrest in 2018, a former friend named Gary S. told law enforcement that D'Angelo was attacked by a German shepherd when they, as teenagers, burglarized a house in Gold River. Angry at the dog, D'Angelo set it on fire with an M-80 firecracker.
1: The location wasn't Gold River, and the friend wasn't Gary S., but it was a German shepherd.
5: I couldn't say for sure, but I don't think he was sorry he killed a dog. In
1: 1962, Jim, we agreed not to use his last name, considers himself Joe's best friend.
5: He uh, liked killing birds and things, and for a while I got into it too. He'd say take a shotgun, blow it in a tree with 100 sparrows and kill maybe 15 of them and drop to the ground You
1: know. The teens meet at the river. Jim's swimming in the channel when the water around him begins to spurt in small explosions. He looks to the bank and there sees Joe firing pot shots with an automatic rifle. Jim clambers to the bank to slug him but Joe holds the rifle on him and then takes off. Jim hunts all over Rancho Cordova for his tormentor. But it's Joe who comes up on Jim from behind at the bowling alley, who has the upper hand. Before Jim can do anything, Joe says,
5: I hear you're looking for me, and if you want, we can go out back and duke it out, deal it with me. And he says, I, I can become your friend and not your enemy. And I got that old jelly. We go down the river, go swimming, go anywhere you want. Go hang out wherever you want. Your choice. And I said, "Oh well, uh, I rather have a friend than an enemy." <laughs> so we started hanging. We started being hanging together.
1: Jim paints a Norman Rockwell friendship. They swim and float for hours down the American River, then cross fields eating fresh cabbages and windfallen peaches. Along the lush river bottom, they hunt rabbit and squirrel.
5: The river was everything.
1: But the nights are the best. Sometimes
5: in, in like October in Rancho Cordova, there's a lot of fireplaces going and uh, the air is so clear and clean. You can walk all night if you're a young kid. Just walk and walk because it, it just feels good to be out doing that.
1: When Joe is home, he's required to take care of his little brother and sister, to wash them and get them ready for school and feed them. Jim has the impression there's never enough. Joe's father, an Air Force career man who's hauled his family across the country for years, is largely absent and then leaves altogether. Joe's mother, a waitress at a diner, begins an affair. Many nights, Joe doesn't come home. It's a base town, and the houses of Rancho Cordova are new. They're cheap and flimsy, set too close together, and with side doors in the garage that can be slipped open with a butter knife. Jim acts as lookout while Joe goes inside.
5: Well, I just, I got wrapped up into something I shouldn't have been. I mean, if I had it to be over again, I would not want to be into that realm. Yeah, I'd want to be just stick down at the river having fun to get a
1: bottle. Sometimes, Joe steals a gun, but most of what he takes is small.
5: I think that he got into robbery places to get food, find a refrigerator in the garage and go into the freezer and get a, an armload of steaks and stuff and carry it. You know, that just come home and say, there it is. <laughs> the food in the freezer was number one for him.
1: There's also a thrill in trespassing private spaces.
5: When I would be with him in a house, I can only tell you It was so exciting. It was uh, uh, like the excitement was so uh, outrageous. You know, like uh, being somewhere you're not supposed to be, (laughs) no matter what, something you're not supposed to be, no matter what.
1: These petty crimes are a critical window into the predator Joseph D'Angelo will become. A time before he hid this side. Here's the compulsive prowler, out almost every night, the intruder who scavenges kitchens, the reflexive violence in response to threat. Jim and Joe are out roaming when Joe spies an open garage and starts to walk up. A young German shepherd charges out of the garage, barking so fiercely Joe is knocked to the ground. Jim sees the fear on Joe's face turn into something else.
5: He uh, was determined to do what he was going to do.
1: Joe pulls a firecracker from his pocket.
5: And I said, Joe, that dog's just doing his job. He's just doing what he's supposed to be doing in there. And I knew he was a young dog because I saw him, but there was no stopping him on there.
1: He grabs Joe's arms, but Joe twists out of the hold and throws the lit explosive. It lands beneath the barking dog.
5: So when that went off, the dog flew uh, up in the air, and that killed the dog. It's a time of anger in my heart for him for what he did, but he apologized and unless we got back together after a few days.
1: Jim doesn't think Joe cares at all about the dog. What he cares about is losing his friend. Not long after, Joseph D'Angelo quits high school and enlists in the Navy, hoping he'll make grade as an aviator like his decorated father, but winding up below deck as a repairman. Jim never sees him again. An investigator for the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office tries to verify Jim's story. The owners of the house Jim directs him to are no longer alive. Their daughter doesn't remember anything happening to a family pet. But there's a blurb in the small-town paper after D'Angelo returns home from a largely uneventful Vietnam tour. A daylight break-in at the same house. The thief takes a watch, a ring, and six piggy banks. It's the hallmark of a cat burglar who prowls Rancho Cordova the next three years. Some 150 perplexingly minor burglaries. Until D'Angelo moves on to become a police officer and begins to ransack bedrooms in Visalia, stealing more piggy banks and killing a man. Less than a year later, there is yet a third time the house with the barking dog is noteworthy. It's ten doors from the home of the East Area Rapist, victim number one, Phyllis.
5: Joe D'Angelo had demons in him, and he would listen to the demons and do what the demons would tell him to do.
1: And there is the crux of it. Is Joseph D'Angelo, as Jim and others in his life believe, as human as any other, capable of goodness and love and compassion, overridden by some darker force? Or is he evil? He doesn't have a soul. I mean, do you really doubt he does? After D'Angelo is wheeled off stage from the ballroom plea hearing, District Attorney Anne Marie Schubert sticks around. The interviews are over and the media crews pack up their cameras. I mean,
3: I actually asked him, do you think it's okay to call him Hannibal Lecter? He is. He's a sociopath. Yeah.
1: I mean, this is all page. you know. It's all contrived. <laughs> Schubert has established D'Angelo's guilt, but she has yet to fully lift the mask off this living Hollywood horror. Showing the world the real Joseph D'Angelo becomes her new goal. And an eight hour video recording that suggests another possible reality remains hidden. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, this is part nine of Man in the Window. Deputy Schroeder's shoplifting report, maps, photos, and exclusive reporting on the case can be found at ellietimes.com MITW. Man in the Window was written and reported by me, Paige St. John. Original music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Music coordination and sound design by Marcelino Pondo. Production assistance from Tressa Verstig. Our editors at the Los Angeles Times are Steve Clough, Abby Fentress Swanson, and Shelby Grad. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery.